Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Today we're going to talk about the Kherson counteroffensive. It's finally happening. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Russia cutting off gas to Europe. And then we'll talk about Iraq's almost revolution. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have Chile. Uh, they had a new constitution that they were trying to put forward, and it has been rejected in a national referendum. We have Israel speeding up the schedule on its new settlements in Palestine, east of Jerusalem. We've gone over the Israel-Palestine conflict multiple times before. I'm in favor of the two-state solution, but given the way the borders between the states have been drawn. I'm not sure how you're going to achieve the two-state solution properly in a way that's not going to cause more war. Uh, there should have been one consolidated Palestine and one consolidated Israel. They, they should be contiguous. It shouldn't be one piece of Palestine here on the, the coast of the Mediterranean. Israel comes straight through the Palestinian territory, and then you have the other part of Palestine on the West Bank. Now, that makes no sense. There should have been one contiguous Palestine, contiguous in that there shouldn't be enclaves, there should be one country, and one contiguous Israel, their two-state solution. But because we don't have that, there's probably going to have to be a fight in order to get the two-state solution. Uh, either that or the ethnic cleansing going on is just going to continue until the Palestinians get forced off of all the territories surrounding Israel. In, and get forced into other people's countries, like Lebanon and Jordan, uh, to name a few. So, it's looking like the second one is gonna, what's going to happen, unless something changes diplomatically, because the, the Palestinians are, are not going to win a war against Israel to get that two-state solution. They'll need an outside backer. So far, they don't really have one. They're, they're sort of the they're sort of unwanted... <laughs> They're they're convenient politically, and then when they're not convenient politically, they're forgotten by the other Arabs of the region. So it's looking like the ethnic cleansing route is what's going to happen, where the Israelis are just going to shoot at and force off the land any Palestinians that get in the way of their settlement plans. And again, we'll see where this goes. So, that's Israel for you. Then we have... The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, I think that's what it is, they've made a visit to the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. Uh, this is a power plant in eastern Ukraine. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, eastern Ukraine. It's close to the front lines, but not, you know, on the front line. Uh, it's in, obviously, it's in Zaporozhia, but... It's this nuclear plant is one of the largest in Europe. Apparently, I've come across that stat. And it was being shelled uh, by our various artilleries. Now, interestingly enough, the, the Ukrainians accused the Russians of shelling the plant in spite of Russia occupying the plant 
so the Ukrainians accused the Russians of shelling a plant that they were actively occupying at the time. And now it has been, with the arrival of the IAEA, it's been all but confirmed that the Ukrainians were the ones doing the shelling the entire time and just accusing the Russians of doing it for a short-lived PR victory. Oh, granted, most media outlets probably aren't going to report that fact, so I guess the PR win is a bit more long-lasting, has a bit more longevity to it. But, yeah, they were shelling a nuclear power plant. I don't know what exactly they were hoping to achieve with this. Maybe they were hoping to cause a reactor meltdown and create a, a but that would create a radiation zone. So on the assumption that they're going to win, you know, if you're pro-Ukraine, if we're going off the assumption that Ukraine is going to win the war, well, that radiation zone is going to mean your territory gets irradiated and you become weaker. These are Ukrainians, not necessarily ethnically, not all of them, but this is Ukrainian territory. These are people who have Ukrainian citizenship and you're trying to destroy this nuclear plant and blame it on the Russians. I can only see this backfiring on the Ukrainians in terms of the legitimacy of their government. That, that's what I see. Uh, there's, there's talks now, uh, in a very ironic twist, uh, there's talks now of a potential military coup against Zelensky. Uh, if you remember, back in February and March, there was a whole lot of talk about a potential military or oligarchy coup against Putin. Now we're starting to hear talk of a military coup against Zelensky. I don't know if it's going to happen. All right, uh, I didn't believe it when it was Putin. I don't have too much reason to believe that it's going to happen to Zelensky. But we're starting to hear talk of that now as well. And that I, I guess just a twist of irony there. But we're starting to hear that. And again, going back to them shelling this nuclear plant and what would have happened if they were successful in damaging it sufficiently enough for it to have a meltdown of some sort, that would only hurt their legitimacy. It wouldn't hurt the legitimacy of the Russians. The Russians weren't the ones doing it. Especially now that uh, the IAEA is there and basically definitively showing that, yeah, the Russians are protecting the plant and someone else is shelling it. Yeah. They haven't gone all the way in saying who that someone else is, but there's only, there's only, excuse me, there's only two, two suspects here. So, yeah, I, I don't see what the goal here was. Uh, I don't see the goal here. Uh, all I see is that it's going to hurt the legitimacy of the Ukrainian government. That's the only outcome I see from them doing that. And even if they did succeed in causing a meltdown, well, congratulations, the Russians can just move their troops to other parts of the line. Now, they have a more consolidated line and can attack you from other angles, because you're not going to go into the radiation zone, and if you do, they're just going to hit you with artillery. And like, again, what was the gain from attacking this power plant? I don't see it. I, I really don't see it. But the hit on legitimacy for the Ukrainian government is the biggest thing to come out of that, that I suspect. Now, whether or not that's going to result in uh, Zelensky getting overthrown by the military, I, I won't go that far. 
I won't I won't go that far. I'll I'll say that it's being said because it is, but I personally I won't go that far. At least not yet. You know, uh, you never know how things develop, but I'm not at that point yet. So there's the that, and then the that, and then uh, on the other side of the world we have Pakistan, whose flooding crisis we we've talked about a couple times has reached a new level where there's the flooding is so bad that there's a a lake that they're now draining so that it doesn't overflow. And this is likely to cause more flooding in other areas, mind you. And it's also probably going to derive them of fresh water, you know, when the flooding ends. Uh, Pakistan isn't exactly known for being lush green it's known for being a desert with a river that happens to flow through it but they're get, they're having to manage this river because the flooding is so bad i mean i saw an, a figure that put the death toll of, of all these floods at 1200 people it's astonishing it's just a really large number of people this is a big disaster going on and i imagine similar numbers are probably ha going on in uh Similar similar numbers are probably at hand in India as well, because India is going through their own flooding crisis in the north and the east. So, lots of natural disasters. Of course, the the climate change extremists, the climate crisis. Uh, some would call them a cult. Nah, I, I just think they're ill informed. The believe the climate change believers say that this is the worst climate crisis of the decade now back in my day we just called it a natural disaster but i guess now we have to put climate in <laughs> everything but yeah we, it, it, you know it'll be it'll be interesting it'll be very interesting to see how the climate crisis movement handles this coming winter because a large part of what they advocate for is clean energy, uh, you know, wind turbines, solar power, you name it. So, while they can point to things happening in Pakistan and in India, and even a lot of the droughts that were going through Western Europe uh, not that long ago, and say, look, the climate crisis is here, uh, we need to do something now, or it's all over, it'll be interesting to see how strong the movement still is after this winter because oh boy Europe is in for it this winter and we will talk about that a little bit more later on in the episode but uh back in Europe we have Romania seeking to buy military drones from Turkey we have the Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov warning uh, he sent a warning to Moldova it was sort of an indirect warning saying that Everyone should understand that any action that would threaten the security of our troops would be considered under international law as an attack on Russia. And so here he's talking about Transnistria, which is a well, it's a it's a breakaway province. The the Moldovans consider it to still be their territory. Uh, the Russians say it's an independent country that they're just happening. To protect with their peacekeepers, which never leave. <laughs> so, you have that. And, you know, 
considering the isolated nature of that pocket, Moldova could really do damage if, for whatever reason, they decided to attack, if they attacked at an opportune time. Like, say, if the Russians were preoccupied in Donbass and with, say, a Kherson offensive, and the Moldovans would just walk in and take the territory. Oh, wow, would you look at that? Uh, now there's no more Transnistria, and it's just Moldova. Now, granted, that'd be an act of war, and the Russians would just come after them later. <laughs> they would have declared the war themselves at that point. So, but I'm not here to say that the Moldovans are going to win that war, or that that would be a smart idea. What I am saying is that they could deal damage to Russian troops if they were to do something like that. They, they propose, well, not propose, they pose a strategic problem, a strategic threat. To Russia in that way specifically because Russia has troops isolated in this this pocket in Transnistria and the only thing keeping that pocket from being an encirclement is the fact that Moldova is not hostile because on all other sides Transnistria is surrounded by Ukraine so those troops could get eaten alive uh, even if Russia would win in the end that'd be a serious blow to Russia if it were to happen I don't know if Moldova will do it, uh, but given that the Europeans aren't exactly acting in their own best interest right now, I don't necessarily put it past them. Uh, but that's that. And uh, Russia in the east has conducted their Vostok military drills, uh, China and India being some of the participants. I, I believe Iran was a participant as well. And then you had the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan celebrating... It's one year anniversary of U.S. and NATO troop withdrawing from the country. So there's that. Uh, good for them. I wish our withdrawal was earlier and perhaps on better terms. But, you know, you, you can't win them all. Especially when everyone is an interventionist. But that's the rapid fire news. And we'll get into the thick and juicy meat of this episode in just a moment. And now, we're getting into the meat of this episode. And we'll start with the Kherson Offensive. Now, I made a segment, I believe, two weeks ago, talking about the strange absence of the Kherson Offensive. And how they had, they still had a couple months left in the campaigning season to begin it, if they were going to begin it later than scheduled, or if this was always the schedule. And... Here we are two weeks later, and the Kherson Offensive has materialized. So, I guess that was a either a very clever disinformation uh, campaign, you know, uh, to keep throw people off the trail of the Kherson Offensive and then suddenly hit them with the Kherson Offensive, or maybe they scrambled this together and it isn't what it was promised to be. We'll see in time. It's only just begun. Uh, as of my recording this, and by just begun, I mean it's only gone on for a couple days, so we'll see what happens of it in the coming weeks. But alas, we have it, so we're going to talk about it. And I'll start with, uh, I, oh, I already said that, goodness. Oh, goodness. Oh, the Kharasan Offensive, the Kharasan Offensive. Eh. I guess it'd be a little more accurate to describe it as the Kherson Offensive is a disaster. Uh, that's 
That's what I want to say, given the numbers I'm looking at. And we all know I'm biased against the Ukrainians here, so you can take what I say with a bit of a grain of salt here. But the some of the early figures coming out of this are really bad for Ukraine. And I'll just, I'll stake my case, and you can make up it what you will. Uh, and they're losing thousands of men in single days. I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying that. They're losing thousands of men in single days by attacking the Russians in flat, wide-open terrain. And from what we're getting out of this, the Ukrainians do not have the necessary air support or air superiority to keep their ground troops safe by neutralizing Russian artillery from the air where you can more easily pinpoint the location of your enemy's positions and their artillery and you can hit them with your own bombs, your guns, and your own artillery. Uh, but you need air superiority for that. The Ukrainians don't have it. And so they can't nullify or partially nullify the superiority of artillery that the Russians have over them. I mean, I remember this is a this is an anecdote, so it's not necessarily a fact, but there was an anecdote that came out saying that for every one round that the Ukrainians fired, oh, no, 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 it was for every eight rounds the Ukrainians fired, the Russians fired forty-eight back, which is a, a, a redonkulous number. That's what is that, uh, a six to one? Yeah, I think that's six to one artillery advantage. 48 is six times eight, yeah. So that's a really, 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 really big artillery advantage that the Russians have, if that anecdote proves to be true, and given the way in which the Russians are fighting the war, uh, some of the other anecdotes, uh, namely from uh, Scott Ritter, where the Russians would be, not the Russians, the Ukrainians would be deployed to the front line, they'd be hammered from artillery for days on end, and they'd have to fall back because they'd taken so many losses, and they, their position had become untenable, and they never saw a Russian. So, when you look, hear things like that, and you see how the war is progressing for the Ukrainians, when you, well, we, we've talked about in the Donbass where the Ukrainian positions would be just shelled endlessly, and the Russians would pin would attack one point on the line. They would hit it with so much artillery that the Ukrainians would just have to pull out their troops. But you can't just leave those troops pulled out. You can't leave that position empty. You have to put someone else in there to fill the gap. Otherwise, you have a hole in your line. But once you put the people in there, they, the artillery doesn't stop. It just keeps going. And then you have another brigade, another battalion, another company just getting chewed up by Russian artillery without the Russians even advancing their troops. Not very much, anyway. So, given what appears to be the method by which the Russians are fighting the war in the Donbass, such a disparity of artillery is believable. And so, when you're looking at that, you're not going to be able to... You, there is no counter-offensive you can mount if you don't have the air. If you don't have air superiority. If you can't nullify or neutralize or keep the, the pin down 
the Russian artillery, and the Russian artillery just has free reign to fire on you when and where they feel like, well, your counteroffensive is going to die. Especially if you're pushing across flat, wide-open terrain, uh, like is present in Kherson. This is not the Donbass, this is central Ukraine. Like, if we were to split Ukraine up into three-thirds, you'd have the western Ukraine, which is rough, which starts getting rough, mountainous, and forested. You have central Ukraine, roughly, uh, you have the Dnieper River running straight down that piece of Ukraine that's just flat and wide open, and there's marshes to the north, and then you have the Donbass, which is rough and urban, and there's lots of, there's lots of rough terrain and urban environments for troops to hide in. So when you look at that middle portion of Ukraine, where it's flat, wide open, you have the Dnieper running through it, there's no real natural barriers except for the Dnieper and whatever other rivers you can find, that's flat, wide open territory. That is steppe country. You cannot push across open terrain if you have not dealt with the enemy's artillery. And the Ukrainians have not dealt with the Russian artillery, largely because they can't. They don't have they don't have the air superiority. They don't have the air support, and they don't have a superiority of artillery themselves, because uh, then you'd at least have a fair fight. Uh, but given the, the the massive quantity of artillery the Russians have, it, you'd really just have a World War One situation where the defender just has just has this overwhelming superiority, and where the Russians go, they they go, they sit down, and then they just hammer away it with artillery. So. Considering the Ukrainians are doing the counteroffensive, the Russians are on the defensive, they have the advantage because they have so much artillery. The Ukrainians don't have that support. They don't have that luxury. When the Russians attack, they can bring more assets to bear. But the Russians aren't attacking. They have the Russians have the superior number of assets, they have the superior quality of assets, and they have they have a lot more that the Ukrainians don't. Up to and including manpower. Although they're not deploying as much of it as they could, the Ukrainians are on the offensive. In a war where the defender has the advantage, the Russians have enough assets, both air and artillery, and armor, uh, to completely negate Ukraine's defensive advantages. To the point where the Ukrainians have suffered more casualties, even on the defensive, than the Russians have in their offensives in the Donbass. So when you have such a disparity of military assets, and then the side with uh, the 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 side that has the disadvantage here is the one the attacking. It's a disaster in the making. I mean, this isn't the Taliban, where the entire, and this isn't Afghanistan either, where the entire country is mountainous, and you have these guerrilla fighters striking a death blow to an exhausted foe that doesn't want to be there anymore. This is two conventional armies duking it out, and one of them is at a serious disadvantage and is losing even when they are able to utilize all of their natural advantages to their advantage. The defender has the advantage. And Ukraine's still losing. So what do you think happens when they go on the offensive against a superior foe? They lose. And they're losing badly. The Ukrainians, in their offensive, 
They got some initial breakthroughs, though. The Ukrainians, they secured a bridgehead on the eastern side of the Ingulets River, uh, but those troops have since had their momentum stalled by said Russian defenses. Again, they don't have the air superiority that they need to neutralize Russian artillery. So they move across this river. They get they get some good progress in, and then they just get smacked in the face with a million shells, and they have to slow down. They have to stop. Uh, they're trying not to stop, but they've been stalled. Uh, I've seen some people even speculating, given how badly this has ended up for the Ukrainians, I'm hearing some people speculating, uh, namely Alexander Mercurius of the Duran, he's speculating, and a number of others, that the Russians gave up the bridgehead on purpose to lock those Ukrainian troops in a sort of mini-cauldron, a fire trap. And again, the Russians have the artillery advantage, and the Ukrainians are not able to nullify that artillery. It makes sense that that's a possibility. Now, he, he didn't say that that is what happened, and I'm not saying that that is what happened, but it makes sense as a possibility. Either way, the Ukrainians are at a disadvantage due to the terrain. The, the Russians have, in the midst of Ukraine's offensive, the Russians have shaped the battle to their own advantage. Now they are hitting the Ukrainian offensive from all sides with artillery. This hasn't stopped the Ukrainians, though. They're still, they're still trying. They don't want to give up their initial momentum that easily, and they're trying to capitalize on it. They're, they got across the river, and now they're attacking this city of Visokopilia. Uh, Visokopilia. Uh, there, there we go. Visokopilia. That's about as good as you're going to get at me. Uh, they've, they've sent their troops to attack this city, and they've sent wave after wave of men at the Russians, and this is, this entire war has really just been like a smaller scale World War One, but with modern weaponry. Uh, when you look at the armies involved, and the ways in which they're fighting it, the defender has the advantage, but if you have sufficient artillery and you concentrate it, you can make breakthroughs. This entire war has looked like World War One on a smaller scale, but with higher intensity. Now that's what it's looked like. And the one good thing coming out of that is fewer casualties as well. But those fewer casualties come in the context of fewer men in the field to begin with. So they still, they still hit home. And they still have quite the impact, even if they're smaller than what you'd get in World War I. So here we have the Ukrainians sending wave after wave of men at the Russians in about four waves. The first and second waves consisting of 5,000 and 10,000 men, respectively. This force, this combined force, appears to have been taken out of commission, with Russia claiming 3,000 dead and 8,000 wounded. Whatever the numbers may be, this force is no longer operation. And uh, it's believable, that the Russian numbers, given the way the war has gone so far, with lots, lots more wounded than dead, but whatever the numbers, the exact numbers may be, this force of 15,000 men is has been neutralized. They have been neutralized. And then you have a, the third and fourth waves uh, having a combined 10,000 men, and they are currently engaged in combat along the, the line, the front line, in Kherson right now, and taking heavy losses because of 
the Russian artillery. So, and this force is not exactly the best the Ukrainians have. Uh, it's it, it's something. And but then you have the the fifth wave that the Ukrainians claim to have, which appears to be in even worse condition, as the fifth wave, from what we're learning, consists of many reservists and militias, but not necessarily local militias who know the terrain and can deal with. Uh, military incursions from the Russians, it's instead militias drawn from all across the country who are being forced to fight on this one front. So, essentially, we're having an army of conscripts, uh, poorly trained, uh, poorly equipped conscripts going up against the professional Russian army here. At least that's what it's looking like is going to happen in the not-too-distant future if the fate of those first 15,000 men is anything to go off of. They have another, another 10,000, they're, they're going to get chewed up by artillery, and then the fifth wave is going to have to go in, and even if that's just to hold the lines, you're talking about much lower quality troops doing that job in this incredibly dangerous and incredibly tedious position that they've gotten in this bridgehead across the river, where they're surrounded by Russian artillery. Uh, and for perspective on some of these numbers, Ukraine, back in May, I believe, had an estimated 100,000 casualties, uh, which is a number that includes deaths as well as the number of soldiers who've been wounded but were still alive. And uh, a very sound majority of that figure was wounded, and I believe somewhere between fifteen to 20,000 dead. So 80 to 85% of that 100,000 figure was wounded, which is believable given the scale of Russia's artillery barrage. Just, just the sheer scale of the barrage and the fact that the war had been going on for multiple months at that point, it's believable that many would get wounded, but not that many would die. It's not like these were head-on engagements with huge armies doing close-quarters combat with one another. It was artillery. It's, you know, almost like getting hit with an IED. You get, you get taken off the battlefield. Uh, you're no longer in fighting condition, but you're not dead. Right? That's what it was. Uh, 100K casualties, but only around 15 to 20,000 dead. But when you look at these early numbers coming out of the Kherson Offensive again, where they've lost... A force of 15,000 men in mere days, uh, like, still with the majority of that being wounded rather than deaths, but that's 15,000 men that you don't have anymore. That entire force is no longer operational. And your reserves are being committed to the offensive that you're pulling these troops out of. Where's the men going to come from? Where are their replacements going to come from? Because... If you lose 15,000 men in mere days, with at least another 10,000 likely to follow, the 10,000 that are engaged in combat currently, where where are the replacements going to come from? This is a disaster. This is a disaster. And for such small gains and inconsequential gains at that, the Ukrainians are depleting their ammunition... They're depleting their stockpiles of military equipment, both old and new. And most importantly, 
they're depleting their reserves of trained manpower. They're depleting everything they have. Ukraine was already having issues keeping their lines fully manned in the Donbass, where, again, the Russians would just hit them with artillery, they'd pull the troops out, then they'd replace them with a different set of troops, and then those troops would just go through the same mauling. They already had enough trouble keeping the lines fully manned in just the Donbass, and they were relying heavily on their reserves to do that, but now they're committing their reserves towards an offensive. So what happens when the reserves are destroyed in your offensive, the very same reserves that you needed to keep the line together in the place where the Russians are conducting their own offensive? Well, suddenly you run out of men. You certainly run out of combat effective men. And the Russian offensive in Donbass can achieve breakthrough. And when that happens, it's it's game over. I mean, the Ukrainians, if they're using up all this manpower and using up all their reserves now in an offensive, then there's going to be nothing left to deal with the inevitable Russian offensives still yet to come. I mean, Ukraine will have... They, they won't have the men that they need to respond to those Russian offensives properly. Meaning that this is likely going to be Ukraine's last stand. And they're not making the most of it. At least at least not now. The offensive only just begun. We'll see what becomes of it. But it doesn't look like they are making the most of this offensive. Instead, it looks like they're setting themselves up for failure. A failure which the Russians will be more than happy to deliver to them. But we will see what happens to Ukraine. And now we get to Russia. Or more accurately, we get to Europe. Because we have even uh, even more bad news for uh, those living in Europe. Specifically those who aren't in Ukraine. Because Russia has thrown down the gauntlet. It is official. The gas is now gone. As of last week, Russia's Nord Stream 1 pipeline is now running at not 40%, not 20%, not 10%. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline is now running at 0% capacity. And just like that, it's a wrap. That's all, folks. The show is over. That, the door, that window of opportunity that Europe had to course correct, namely Germany, because Germany is where the pipelines went to, that window of opportunity they had to course correct and resume energy flows from Russia to Europe, that window is now closed. And as of this episode's recording, we are officially... In September territory. It is September 5th. This Monday. And I'll just make November 1st. Our arbitrary point. At which the temperatures become. Consistently low enough. To require indoor heating. Which means. uh, Gas. Indoor heating means gas. 
So with that as our arbitrary marker for the the end of days for Europe, Europe has two months left to live before their energy crisis devolves into what I'm going to preemptively describe as a humanitarian crisis. Now, I say two months before a humanitarian crisis instead of my usual uh, two months before, oh, they have... They have this many months before, uh, to get their stuff together. Uh, you know, though they, they have this many months to reverse the policy and get get the gas that they need, you know, from Russia. And they can stop the sanctions. They can open up the Nord Stream 1 pipe. They can open up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And, you know, the, sure, the Russians have already reallocated a majority of that gas, but you can still get 40, you know? You have 40% of Nord Stream 1, you have 40% of Nord Stream 2. Hey, that that's a solid, what, about 80, you know? 80% of Nord Stream 1 pipeline? That's better than you got now. In relative terms, you've doubled your gas. That's what I'd usually be saying. But I say humanitarian crisis now because Europe has exhausted all other import options for natural gas and to no avail. Over the last, what, six months now? The war started in late February, so that's March, April, May, June, July, August, and we're in September now, so yeah, about six months. Over the past six months, Europe has looked everywhere for natural gas. They went to Qatar, they went to the UAE, they went to America, they went to Azerbaijan. And I even think there were attempts to get gas from Nigeria and Algeria as well. But all these attempts came up empty due to a lack of infrastructure, a lack of LNG terminals. You couldn't send the natural gas, you can like make it cold enough to where it becomes a liquid and then ship it by container uh, across the water. You know, without a pipeline, th th Europe didn't have an, enough LNG terminals in the case of American, Canadian, and Qatari gas. And in a lot of the cases, the America, C Qatar, and Canada didn't have the LNG terminals on their end to even get the gas into liquid form to begin with, to ship it across the ocean. So you had a lack of LNG terminals, and if you didn't have a lack of LNG terminals, uh, which they do, you had a lack of pipelines for the rest, you know, like, uh, like Azerbaijan, you need a pipeline. Qatar, you, you can use a pipeline. The UAE, you could use a pipeline. Uh, Algeria, Nigeria, pipelines, uh, LNG terminals. There's just, it's just not there. It, there's either there's no pipeline or there's no LNG terminal in those countries to get you the gas and in the case of LNG terminals it's a two-way street where the Europeans the, the countries that the Europeans are going to to get LNG don't have the LNG terminals to put the gas in liquid form and then even if they did the Europeans don't have the LNG terminals that they need to get the gas to receive the gas in its liquid form and get it back into its gaseous state where it can be used for energy. They, it, there's just not the infrastructure. The infrastructure isn't there. And so Europe has learned over the course of these last six months, they've learned the hard way, that Russia is their only real option for the import 
of cheap natural gas because all of their natural gas infrastructure and this is primarily pipelines all of it's built for russian natural gas but just as they were being forced to reconcile with that reality the russians have now cut them off almost entirely uh, i say almost because the turkstream pipeline is still up and running but quite frankly that's that's not going to be enough if Nord Stream one running at 40 percent caused issues then turkstream by itself it, it's not going to cut it hungary will be all right serbia will be all right but germany france poland the uk everyone who isn't spain or portugal europe was already struggling with energy so much so that they started rationing it if you remember they were trying to build a gas reserve remember the 15 percent voluntary but not really voluntary energy cuts eu members were expected to make in preparation for the winter yeah that was when Nord Stream was operating at 40% and later 20% capacity. So if the Nord Stream pipeline is now at 0% capacity and no one country or group of countries is even capable of providing similar volumes of gas to the Europeans, then there's nothing left to be said. Europe will freeze this winter. They're going to freeze. Uh, now, I've, I've said what I think they need to do, which is they need coal and nuclear. Uh, that, that's what they need to do for the future. Uh, that's going to take a while to build, though. So as far as an immediate solution, I, I ain't got it no more. Russia was the immediate solution. All you had to do was undo the sanctions. All you had to do was walk back your position a little bit so that you didn't have this crisis. But now the Russians have left the table, and that option isn't available anymore. They've, there's no more gas. Not coming from the Russians. So now, the only off-ramp you had, because there, there was talk of how we're going to... Where's the off-ramp for the Ukraine crisis? The only off-ramp you had is, for the Europeans is now gone. Russia is now gone. They're not at the table anymore. You're not getting their gas anymore. And they've already said that they're not going to give it back. They're, whatever gas they send to Europe after the war will never be at the pre-war levels. And that was when they were at... That was when Nord Stream was at, what, 40%? And they had already reallocated 40% of Nord Stream 2's uh, potential capacity? They've probably allocated even more to other projects and pipelines. Coal and nuclear are energy sources that the Europeans can produce domestically, uh, but that's going to take time. The immediate option was Russia. Russia's now gone. So now you deal with the crisis. Europe will freeze this winter. Uh, and while I've been very negative towards the policies the Europeans were pursuing in sanctioning Russia to their own detriment, and the same can be said a little bit over here in America, although our problems are the result of bad domestic policy, 
which is exacerbated by bad foreign policy, but not necessarily caused by bad foreign policy. The European problems are deliberate, are very clearly and distinctively caused by bad foreign policy. There, there is, there's, there's no way around that. Their foreign policy created these problems for them. And while I've been very negative towards the policies of sanctions in general, but the Europeans in pursuing this self-defeating policy. What I have not been negative about, what I have not been negative about, was Europe's ability to course correct if they chose to do so. And uh, I've, I've thrown them the bone almost every time. Oh, when we're talking about energy crises, and, uh, they're, they're, the gas is dwindling slowly but surely. I'm like, oh, France has 70% of its electricity generated by a nuclear power. So they should do better than other countries in Europe. Uh, oh, if Germany just opened up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, they'll be all right. I mean, it, it, it's it's there. You, it's finished. You can just open it up and you can get the gas and you can end this nightmare before it begins. You can end this problem before it happens. Don't let it get worse. You, the, the, it's on the table. And I was always focused on Germany because they had that option. They had an out. France had an out. Or at least that's what I thought. I was saying things like that. When I thought that that was how it was going to go down. And then... And then... Major French energy companies... Started talking about power shortages. And I was... I was caught off guard. I said, oh my god. If France, who gets 70% of its electricity from nuclear power is talking about energy problems due to a lack of Russian natural gas, then we have a problem. We have, we have a big problem. The rest of Europe isn't anywhere near 70%. The rest of Europe uses gas for its energy. If France is in this predicament, God have mercy on the rest of Europe. I, I was... That's what I... I was I was shocked. I was shocked when I heard that. And then we started getting stories of Russia not returning to pre-war gas volumes, even when the war was over. And I said, I was still optimistic for Germany. I said, hey, uh, if you open it up now, sure, it's not going to be at 100%. But you can get close if you have, what, 60, 40 to 60% available on Nord Stream 2. You have 40% still available on Nord Stream 1. You put that together... You're roughly where you were before the war. I mean, it's not like you used Nord Stream 2 at all, so you haven't lost anything. Not really, if you have both of these pipelines, even if they're not operating at 100%. You can have a net loss of nothing if you course correct. So even in that case, I said, hey, there's still a chance for the Europeans. And uh, now we're getting, we're, we're, now we're here. <laughs> now we're here where there's, you have the G7 that they just had a meeting talking about imposing a price cap on Russian gas. And there, uh, and this is supposed to be a, a international thing where it's not just the G7, but it's supposed to be. A global thing, and they're gonna sanction anyone who doesn't play by their new rules. And this is gonna fail. I'll, I'll say that up front. This is going to fail. One because 
of OPEC. OPEC and OPEC Plus have an overt interest in undermining this this attempt at controlling energy prices. Why? Because OPEC and OPEC Plus, they have the power to set international oil prices through their production, and they won't surrender it so easily. That's number one. Then there's number two. America has already tried this on a, a smaller scale when you saw Biden going to Arabia to try to get them to produce more oil so that the prices would come down through the increased production. An effort which, if you remember, ended in failure. Uh, this, was follow this failure was followed almost immediately by OPEC's decision the next time they met not to lower prices it it was a humiliation an unnecessary humiliation but it was a failure of exactly the same policy that we're seeing being floated by the g7 right now so that there's the second reason why it's going to fail and then there's number three no one wants to bail western countries out of the consequences of their own policies no one wants to do it and quite frankly no one has any reason or national interest in doing so either it's just not going to happen it's nothing mean it's nothing personal it's just why should we bail you out of your own policy you did this you didn't have to do that you didn't have to sanction russia you didn't have to keep the sanctions up for as long as you did. You didn't have to try to wage a currency war against Russia, which ended in failure. You didn't have to uh, try to sanction every Russian who lived by cutting them off from the SWIFT system. You, you didn't have to do all that. But you did. And you were very adamant about doing it. And you were very convinced that everyone else should do it too. And now that you're reaping the whirlwind why should we and I'm speaking sort of from the perspective of literally everyone else why should we bail you out of your bad decisions and the, there's no answer to that there's no <laughs> there's no good answer to that anyway it's not going to happen it's just not going to happen no one has any interest in, in bailing them out. So, like I said, Europe is going to freeze this winter. Uh, uh, rest in peace, Europe. I, I don't know what else to say. That's, that's, it's a done deal now. This is now baked into the cards. And we, we've been talking about it. A lot. And for as almost annoying as it is to keep bringing up, now we can guarantee we'll be talking about it more. Because it's going to get worse. The, ad, the effects of this, the consequences of this, are going to be horrific for a lot of countries in Europe. And I feel that... While it's being discussed now, you know, on sort of the down low, and you still have this triumphalist press that believes that 
the Russians are the ones who are blundering still, and how the West has a, a master plan on how they're going to get around Russia's uh, war of energy against the West when winter comes. The noose is going to be singing a different tune. And it's going to be... It's going to be a bad one. I'll just... It's going to be a bad one. So... Stock up on blankets, I guess. Because... That's... Hey, man, look. That's a... (laughs) That's a better game plan than Search for Firewood. Uh, In a, a, a region of the world where there's been more deforestation than anywhere else. Uh, this is a part of the European industrial experience. Uh, you, you're gonna tell people to go look for firewood. That, that that's the that's the equivalent of telling people to go pound sand over this crisis that they engineered themselves, uh, and that you had you even had uh, some politicians. I think it was uh, Angelina Baerbock. It, it was a, a German foreign minister who literally stood up there and said. She doesn't care what German voters thinks. Uh, she doesn't care what the German voters think. She's going to support Ukraine uh, to uh, the bitter end. And I'm just like, wow. The fact you had the audacity to say that out loud is crazy. The, <laughs> the fact that some people had the audacity to say that out loud is crazy. Who are you the foreign minister for? The Germans or the Ukrainians? It's insane. It's insane. And while American uh, ministers and secretaries won't say that themselves, a lot of them sympathize, which is why we keep giving billions and billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine. I think we just sent over another $3 billion to these people. So, uh, at the very least on a monetary level, we're right up there with what she said. And this is why America First is so important. We can't, we can't keep doing this. And this is why interventionism is so bad for this country. Because this is interventionism. On a financial and material level, rather than a direct deployment of troops. This is still interventionism. Some people think they're being sophisticated by saying... Oh, I think we should give some equipment and some aid to the Ukrainians, but I don't want direct military intervention. No no boots on the ground. Well, you're still going to end up with the consequences of this intervention, which is us depleting our military of its own resources that we paid for. And us giving away billions. We've given away, what, 60 billion now to the Ukrainians? With nothing to show for it? Nothing to show? They're not going to pay us back. Especially if the war ends the way I think it's going to end, which is Ukraine not existing. They're not going to pay us back. Uh, That money's just gone. Congratulations. This is what intervention gets us. It's... This is why America First is so important. And why it needs to be executed all the way through to its logical conclusions. We need to get out of situations like this, not into more. And that no, and no, we don't need to make exceptions for Taiwan. That's just going to be a bigger mess. Although it's going to give me so much content to talk about on my podcast. But I digress. I digress. Uh, that's Europe. 
in for perhaps one of the worst winters on their record uh, in the post-1840 world. But uh, now we get into Iraq and their almost revolution. Last week, violence broke out in the streets of Iraq. You know, more violence. Uh, when the major religious and political figure, Muqtada al-Sadir, announced he was quitting Iraqi politics. Now, Sadir is specifically a leader for the Shiite Muslim majority in the country. Uh, this doesn't mean he represents all Shia Muslims in the country, but that's sort of the faction within Iraq that he represents, and it's important that Shia is the majority demographic in Iraq. So this is where he is, politically and religiously. He threatened to quit Iraqi politics, and I, I believe we talked about this very briefly in one of the rapid-fire segments of e either last week's ep episode, it had to have been last week's episode because it, it happened last week, on Monday, when he did this, I was about to say this other the one before that, but it had to have been last week. Uh, but now we have more to talk about here, uh, because shortly following Muqtada al-Sadir's announcement that he was quitting, many groups proclaiming support for him took to the streets in protests, which quickly devolved into riots, which have so far killed at least 30 people. There were shootouts, there was street fighting. I I even saw a guy with a... a he was firing a rocket launcher, if you can believe that. Uh, and this is primarily happening in Baghdad. Most of the videos that I saw were from Baghdad. And in Baghdad, you had rioters in similar fashion to the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was some pretty interesting... Uh, some pretty interesting imagery. Uh, they, they were standing on top of this... The... the uh, Oh, goodness. It's this wall, and it has these segments that are big blocks of concrete, and they're sort of arrayed together to form a wall around this government complex. They took down, like, two sections of this concrete barricade, effectively what it was, surrounding the government complex, and then the... the... the dam was broken, so to speak. The tidal wave people just rushed in there, and it was a mess, a really big mess. Uh, so much so uh, that Muqtada came back and voiced his opposition to the violence and called on his supporters to withdraw from the parliament building and go home. He even went as far as to threaten that if people didn't leave within 60 minutes, he would follow through on leaving politics, saying, quote, there were brutal militias, but the sadirists shouldn't be vulgar. I believe my supporters are disciplined, which is why, if you don't withdraw from the parliament within 60 minutes, I am not going to be the sadirist movement leader again. I don't even want you to stage a peaceful demonstration. End quote. So, at the very least, he was able to get out in front of the pack and get them to go home uh, before it got too far out of hand, uh, and I say that because the violence and unrest seems to be dying down now, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what becomes of Iraq in the aftermath of these riots. Will the Sidirists have their way on more issues, or will their movement be treated like enemies of the state, 
we shall see. Then there's the U.S. side to this, and I guess, uh, speaking of enemies of the state, hey, did you catch that Biden speech the other day? That's crazy how he thinks the MAGA Republicans are. The problem, hmm. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, uh, we'll see what happens to them in the midterms. Uh, that'll be very awkward, you know, after giving that speech. If the Democrats lose as badly as a lot of people think they're going to lose in the midterms, and then they have to sit next to those manga republicans that they that, the, that biden has literally not literally but very 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 suggestively figuratively called the enemies of the state uh by saying that they were the greatest threat to democracy it'll be very interesting to see the democrats that agree with the sentiment sitting next to these very same manga republicans in congress uh, and I imagine that's going to be very awkward for a lot of them. But that's that's just a side note to this. But back to Iraq and the, the violence that broke out, there's the U.S. side to all this. Because in all the chaos, the U.S. Embassy was presumably attacked as well. It's within the government complex. And there were videos of helicopters on the roof preparing for takeoff, implying that there was an evacuation of embassy staff. Uh, this prompted many, mainly conservatives, but there were others as well. This prompted many in the U.S. to draw immediate similarities to the hurried evacuation of Kabul just a year ago. We And now, they say it's an embarrassment for the Biden administration. And frankly, it probably is. The optics of this aren't exactly the best. But I have quite the different view on the matter. I am as far from pro-Biden as one can get in this country without being the type of person who hopes a president does poorly. But I don't see why the events in Baghdad should be an embarrassment to him. Again, I think they will be an embarrassment to him and his administration, but I don't see why they should be. I mean, let's take a... a 30,000 foot view of this and look at the situation for what it is. A political crisis caused by interfactional conflicts within Iraq's domestic politics that got out of hand and got out of control when a major domestic political and religious figure threatened to withdraw from Iraqi politics over disputes with other groups in Iraq's government. And this led to Iraqis rioting over what happened in Iraq's government. And these riots targeted the Iraqi government compound where the U.S. Embassy happened to be. That's a whole lot of Iraq, that's a whole lot of domestic, that's a whole lot of not-America. This has nothing to do with the United States. So the idea that Biden is to blame for unrest that broke out in someone else's country caused by a political crisis in someone else's country is unreasonable to me. And I don't like this guy. But it's unreasonable to me that this even comes back to us in any way, shape, and form. We have no, There's nothing to do with us. And while conservatives weren't the only ones to criticize Biden for this... And for what happened in Iraq, unfortunately, it is the conservatives who have drawn the conclusion 
that America is somehow responsible for dealing with crises like this. Now, maybe it's just because Biden is in office and not Trump. Uh, uh, but then again, if Trump was in office... Uh, actually, I don't know. I, don't know. I can't say that it, it wouldn't have happened because, it, again, it had nothing to do with it. This wasn't in our control. But perhaps we would have had military personnel there. I don't know. It's an embassy. It's not like a, it's a military base or something. It's literally a civilian area. I guess we we would have had troops there, maybe, or defending the building. Maybe. I don't, I don't see what exactly Trump would have done differently. Because, uh, again, this has nothing to do with us. And this is very spontaneous. Uh, but conservatives have come to the conclusion that America is responsible for dealing with crises like this in other people's countries. And a question that comes to my mind amidst all of the criticism being hurled Biden's way is what other course of action should have been taken? Like, we can, we can dogpile this man for retreating from Afghanistan and getting embarrassed by China back in, in Alaska when they had that summit between America and China of way way back in like 2021 and we got embarrassed on our own home soil when they said you cannot speak to us from a position of power we can dogpile this guy for giving for approving the giving of tens of billions of dollars to the only nazi regime on the planet the ukrainians we can dogpile him all day and night for these things but when it comes to this and the the video of the U.S. Embassy staff presumably being evacuated from the U.S. Embassy. What else should have been done? Should they? Should we not have evacuated our embassy staff when it clear and present dangers presented themselves? Uh, should we not have done that? I mean, the riots materialized out of thin air. Like, should the Biden administration have just just seen the future? And responded preemptively to Sadir quitting politics before he even announced that he was quitting politics. Is that what they should have done? Should should we have just should they have accessed Area Fifty One to get that time travel technology and go? Oh, Al Sadir is gonna resign from Iraqi politics. We better make sure that our guys are out before that happens. Is what were we supposed to do? What were they supposed to do? Uh, now, obviously, I'm being facetious now, but you get what I'm saying. Assuming those helicopters actually were evacuating our embassy staff, then that was a good thing to do. But this is what happens when, when you adhere to interventionist ideology. Problems that aren't ours, by any stretch of the imagination, get treated as though they were. And our leaders get pressured into dealing with other people's problems so that they don't get blamed for them. It's an endless and self-justifying cycle of problems and the problems caused by interventions. But then those same problems which are caused by interventions are used as the justification for yet more intervention. Which is one of the reasons I am not an interventionist, but rather I adhere to the one true ideology, which is isolationism. Now, I could speak all day and night about things we should not be doing, 
But that's only one side of the equation. You, you can't just talk about problems. You need to talk solutions, which is exactly what I'm going to do for my next anniversary episode coming up in a couple weeks. But that will be for another day. And that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Europe is officially doomed. And and uh, and those Ukrainians are probably going to go with them. But at least we're not, for now. So, the, I'll, I'll just throw that silver lining in there. But that's all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on this lovely geopolitical podcast of mine. I've been your host, Hyshawn Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, until we meet again next Monday, my lovely listeners, Servus.